0: Okay, so just a quick word to add on to what Alan was saying. Um, if, if you're at all interested in that conversation about how to be involved in the foster and adoption, um, how to engage with and help uh, kids in tough places, especially um, I, would, uh, I would highly recommend you get involved, get connected somehow, talk to somebody. It's one of the highest priorities for Ginger and I to talk to couples who are on the fence that they're like, oh, do I get involved in this or not? And we will make time to have those conversations as well, personally, as well as all these other ministry connections that we have in this world. And and um, so proud and pleased that our church takes this ministry so seriously. Um, I think it's part of why God has blessed us as He has. Um, so let me give you a quick background in case you haven't been here the last few weeks. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 28, so just very quickly know, David has been on the run from Saul for several years in in the Bible, several chapters. Saul's been trying to kill him over and over again. David, um, I believe in an act of faithlessness, hopelessness. He gives up on God continuing to provide for him and God continuing to take care of him, and instead he runs to the Philistines, his, his enemies, the people he's been spending his whole life fighting against, and now he decides, if I go to the Philistines, if I go to Achish, who is this king who he knows, um, the king of Gath, uh, one of the big five cities of Philistia, and so if I go, if I go to him, <clears throat> maybe I can be safe, and so he does that. So what he's been doing now for a year and a half um, is he's created this very dark, um, I believe, uh, uh, really evil life for the last year and a half of his life in which um, he lies to Achish left and right. He is constantly living in a state of lies, of, of a, a totally false identity, where he goes out to every day with his band of 600 um, killers and soldiers and cutthroats and, cut and <coughs> all of those people. And they'll they'll attack a city that is an enemy of Israel, sometimes even an ally of Philistia. They'll attack a town, a village. They'll wipe them out, kill everybody, and then they will go back to Achish and tell him who we attacked today was a Jewish community. And so Achish believes them because no one can say otherwise because David's killed everyone who could say otherwise. And so then that that this pattern happens. The Bible implies like almost daily, like this is a constant thing going on for a year and a half with David and his men. Uh, Many Bible commentaries refer to this as the darkest time in David's life, which is impressive because there are some very dark times in David's life. That's what we're picking up. So he's been able to pull this off for a year and a half and Achish is none the wiser. In fact, Achish is absolutely convinced that David um, is honest with him, as you'll see next week (coughs) as this is unpacked. And we see them, uh, the Achish, continue to over and over again stand up for David's integrity, which is just kind of horrifying to consider. So First um, Samuel 28, starting in verse 1, um, all, the, all of David's uh, chickens are coming home to roost here. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel, and Achish said to David, "'Understand that you and your men are going to go out with me in the army.'" All right, so let me just stop there real quick. David seems trapped by this. David is painting himself into a corner. He's been doing this, and now Achish is like, man, you're such a great warrior, and you're so completely trustworthy that now as Philistia is going to go to war against Israel, not not more of these <laughs> little raiding parties, not more of these little, uh, you know, back and forth skirmishes. No, no, this time we're going to actually go to war. we we've got enough soldiers. We're counting on it. And David, you're going to fight with us. Now David's going to have to make a choice. Does he fight against his own people, against God's people, against the people who he is the next anointed King of? Seems like a problem. Or does he get caught and found out by Achish and Philistia that he's been lying to them all along? Here's what's wild. He's now going to get offered a job. Listen to what Achish says. What is David going to do? It's a tense moment. David says to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. What an enigmatic statement, right? What is David going to do here? We don't know. It may be that David doesn't know yet what he's going to do. So David just says, Well, you'll finally get to see me in action yourself. And Achish says to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. As we go into battle against Israel, you're going to be my bodyguard, my picked commander. You're going to be the person who is actually my personal leaders, my special forces, the ones who are going to stand around me and defend me no matter what. (coughs) Whose job has David just been offered? This is the king of Gath. The king of Gath. Gath, he has chosen a new mighty warrior, a new champion for himself, a new someone who can go in between, who can step out into the battlefield and proclaim himself. Whose job is that? That was Goliath's job. David has just been offered to fill the job, that the opening he created, right? What is David going to do here? You want to hear something even more fascinating in the Hebrew here? Here's what's wild. You want, you want another double entendre? Oh, I'll, um, yeah, you'll finally get to see me in action, personally. The term bodyguard in the Hebrew is, you ready for this? Keeper of my head. <laughs> that kind of has two meanings as well, doesn't it? Which kind of keeper of your head is David going to be? Is he going to keep your head the way he tried to keep Saul's, keep you alive? Or is he going to keep your head like he did Goliath's, meaning store it somewhere, right? What's David going to do? Verse 3, now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums, right there, the Hebrew here, mumblers, spellcasters, people who, magic users, and the necromancers... Those who have personal spirits, who know the spirits, he had kicked them out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel and then camped at Gilgaboa. I'm about to show you on a map where those are in just a second, but I just want this reminder Israel's greatest hope against Philistia is dead. Their number one greatest hope is Samuel. Samuel's dead. Samuel's gone toe-to-toe with them before, years before, and defeated them every time. He's dead. Samuel's gone. Samuel can't even get advice from him. I mean, Saul can't get advice from him. He can't get to that. Saul has driven out the necromancers. He desperately needs the wisdom from Saul. It's, it, the Bible's setting up a, a moment here. And then verse 5, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. So he, what, here's what Saul realizes. The Philistines aren't coming to raid this time. The Philistines are coming to wipe us out. It's a nasty pattern of behavior there in Israel, isn't it? And people trying to wipe each other out all the time. It's such an ugly picture that's over there, and we talked about and prayed about that a little bit last week. So here we have this situation, the Philistines have now shown up and they've gathered a large army. All five major cities have gathered their kings and their armies and they're now going to encamp in the valley of Jezreel. That's a place, this is not a hit and run, it's not a raid. Let me show you real quick what we're talking about here. So on the map, so here you have the, the Mediterranean Sea um, over here. And so here, this is Israel, Israel runs like this, it's bigger than this, it's just the northern part. And so, um, and so here you have, you'll notice this mountain range. We talked about this, the yellow, the mountain range, the kind of blockades. Philistia is over here. So here's what's happened. Normally they just come in here and they have these little battles and they have these little skirmishes in the mountain region or in the Shephelah we talked about. This time something different has happened. They've come all the way up here and come to here. So in the middle here of Israel in the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Jezreel is where Israel grows essentially all of its food. This is Philistia saying, We're gonna encamp in the middle of your breadbasket where all of your food is and force you to come fight us. No more raiding, no more hiding. You can't hide in tunnels and caves anymore, no more of that. Now we're gonna camp somewhere right out in the middle of a field where you can come get us anytime you want. That's how arrogant and proud the Philistines are. We've got you outmanned, we've got you outnumbered. We've got next slide. We've got you defeated. So as you come in from the valley of Jezreel, over here, you come down to a pinch point at Shunem. And so they have encamped here at Shunem, right here. What we know is that Saul has brought his men here by these springs, down by the spring of Herod. The spring of Herod at Gilboa which is where you see Mount Gilboa down here. This whole mountainous region starts here. The spring of Herod is where Gideon also had his soldiers. This is where people have fought in the Valley of Jezreel from time in the past. And by the way, it's the same valley that has a city on it called Megiddo, which is where the battle of Armageddon happens. So this is about, this valley matters. It will matter. It has always mattered. It's a huge deal in the Middle East. So By the way, you see a little place called Endor up here that's also here. But notice, so Saul's down here, the armies of the Philistines are here, Endor's over here. Remember that in a second. Endor or Eindor, E -E in front of a a word in this language, just means a spring. So that's the spring of door there that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Saul was always in a battle with them. This is not hit and run time. This is full out warfare. You can't leave your enemies encamped in the middle of your fertile basket. Verse 6. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Now, Saul too has painted himself into a corner, hasn't he? He's painted himself into a corner. The the Philistines have him so badly outnumbered, he knows he cannot win this fight. He can't defeat them. He's terrified. This isn't something he can just let sit and let happen. He has to go fight them. He's in the bed of his own making. You may feel sorry for him, which is totally fine if you're that merciful a person, and yet he is, in fact, in a place that He has created. God is silent. God has sworn to be silent to him. God has sworn to not deliver him anymore. God has made these promises because of his consistent disobedience, his disregard for God, his disrespect for God. The prophet Samuel, who could usually speak for God if Saul would talk to him, is dead. Keep in mind, Saul, Samuel's been dead. Samuel's been dead for a short amount of time, but he's been disconnected from Saul for decades. Saul's not been going to him for long. Maybe some of us can identify with the idea of someone dies and then we wish we'd spent the last few decades learning their wisdom. If you find yourself in that situation, if you think of someone like that, don't waste time. He can't find a priest. He he can maybe carve out some rocks, but he can't find a priest who God approves of who can now cast the Urim and the Thummim, the yes-no stones to get insight from. Why can't Saul find any priests anywhere? Because he killed them all. That's why he slaughtered all of them in Nob. They were all dead. You talk about a, a, a bed of your own making. Yeah, there's no priest. The only priest around who seems to God seems to speak to to the Urim and the Thummim is with David. Speaking of David, he's driven David away. He's really driven his son away. His son' the relationship with his son is estranged. He, it, Jonathan's going to fight with him the next day, apparently. But but their relationship is estranged. When we talk in a few minutes, spoiler alert, when, we, when Saul talks to the spirit of Samuel in a few minutes, he's going to leave out the Urim thing. I think I know why. I don't think he wants Samuel asking him, well, why not? Why isn't the, spirit, why isn't the Urim working, Saul? Because Samuel died not knowing about the slaughter maybe of Manab. I don't know. His, and on top of all of this, his most faithful warrior, servant, musician, leader, and personal comforter has been driven into exile by Saul. And now Saul is looking down on an army, a massive army of Philistines, and somewhere in that massive army of Philistines is 600 killers who Saul drove into their midst. This is now numbered. Maybe he can see David's banner out there in the midst of all this. I don't know. Maybe Saul's thinking, maybe it wasn't the wisest thing I ever did to drive someone who's 10 times the warrior I am into the camp of my enemy. How about that? Saul, who has experienced the ecstasy of being filled with the Holy Spirit, is now experiencing nothing but silence. And he's all alone. So in his desperation, by the way, if you feel bad for him, the chronicler may comfort us in this. 1 Chronicles 10, I'm going to jump to verse 14, indicates he did not seek guidance from the Lord, therefore the Lord put him to death. The chronicler doesn't buy it. The chronicler is saying, now, he didn't really seek God. Maybe he was faking. Maybe it was just a show. I don't know. So, then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium. Again, the mumblers. That I may go and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Eindor. Or Endor. Um, This is not where the little furry Ewoks live. That's a totally different different situation. Um, They would have, this is wild to me, a couple of things. One, that they haven't answered for him. Man, that would trouble me as a leader, wouldn't it? Like, if you're like, hey, I've, I've kicked out all the necromancers and the mediums. And then you come to a couple of your servants and you're like, hey, I kind of need to talk to a medium. They're like, well, there's one in Endor. How do you know that? You shouldn't know where there's a medium that quickly. Like, that's, that's a problem right here, right? He needs a better class of servants for sure. But here's where the other part is. Remember when I threw it on the map? They're going to have to sneak all the way around the army of the Philistines to get to her. How desperate is Saul? He's that desperate. He's that out of control. Verse 8, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, and he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Oh, What a, what a shockingly sad moment this is. Did you see what Saul has to do to start this process? Here at the end of Saul's kingship. He's 24 to 48 hours from being done as king, and he divests himself of all of his kingly vestiges. He takes them off himself. Actually, this is probably Saul not in disguise. The kingship is probably Saul in disguise. What do you think Saul takes off to go hide? How do you divest yourself of your kingly vestiges? Like, What kind of things do you think he took off to disguise himself? There's going to be at least one that's important here in Samuel, isn't it? What do you think he took off? His robe, his kingly robes are going to be gone, his kingly staff, his kingly ring, his kingly crown, all these different things. He has removed all those from himself in order to go in direct disobedience to the laws of God and even his own laws. The woman says to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums of the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? You're ready for some rank hypocrisy? Listen to verse 10. But Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman says, who shall I bring up for you? And he says, bring up Samuel for me. Now he wants to talk to Samuel. 30 years late. An oath about not punishing her for breaking the laws of the Lord in the name of the Lord. Does this mean anything to Saul now? Does God's name even mean anything to Saul anymore? Is this just done I, I wrote a little note. I, I often in my own notes, I'll write a little prayer in the midst of it. God, protect us from using God's name in vain, merely through habitual reference. God, protect us from using God's name uh, in vain, merely through habitual reference. He is the mighty creator and redeemer, worthy of our respect. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. This is my favorite verse. One of my favorite verses in the entire Old Testament. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. I don't know how she picked up that it's Saul. That is not clear in the passage. He's tall. Maybe she already had some suspicions. I don't know. Maybe, maybe some of this was going on already in her heart. But what I love is that she is shocked. When Samuel shows up, she is totally mind-boggled. Like, what, like what on earth? I think, just so you'll know, and so do a lot of other people who study these passages, I believe like virtually all pagan practitioners, she is a total fraud. I think she is a total fraud. She's been taking money from people all of her life as a total fraud, just like virtually everyone who is a pagan practitioner. Uh, One of the churches I worked up up in Fort Worth, we had a psychic across the street, except psychic was misspelled on her sign. And I remember thinking like, you'd think somehow that would come to you, you know? (laughs) Um, some of you, have, you've never heard of InfoMation Communications, but many of you have heard of the Psychic Friends Network. You guys remember the Psychic Friends Network? Late night TV, the commercials every 15 seconds, right? You may not know that a few years ago, they quietly, not surprisingly, quietly filed for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. They had liabilities. You may not be a business person, but I think you'll catch this. They had liabilities of $26 million and assets of about $1.2 million, that's that's not if you know if you don't understand that that's bad right So here's what's wild the main problem was and I quote bad stock investments <laughs> You can't write this kind of stuff can you That's the difference between fiction and reality Fiction's believable Th- this is there's something mockable rightly so mockable about the con artistry that surrounds virtually all things pagan Not that Christians don't have our fair share of con artists, too. And they also deserve sometimes our mockery. I believe that the vast, vast majority of all such, quote, practitioners are just frauds. If for no other reason, because no self-respecting demon would have anything to do with them. I think that's exactly what's going on most of the time. The truth is, generally, as humans, we are easy to fool. We are so easily fooled and misled. 27% of Americans still believe in astrology. Please stop that. 22% still aren't sure what they believe about astrology. Now listen, I know that God uses signs in the heavens. I see that in the Bible, and I know that that can happen. But the hyper-narcissistic viewpoint that somehow the alignment of certain stars and planets, how they aligned over a very specific part of, the, of our planet that happened to be at the moment you were born, that that somehow dictates things about your life? No, it doesn't. I feel comfortable saying it. No, it doesn't. It has no bearing whatsoever. Cut that stuff out. It's ridiculous that, we can, that almost half of Americans are fooled by this. Is, again, it shocks me. Good news, people over 60 are half as likely to believe in astrology than people under 30. That should tell you something. And by the way, people over 60 were alive when that stuff was really popular in the United States, and at some point between then and now, they've gone, yeah, not so much. It's time to follow that lead. This is why that, that, people, that secular people who, who attack this stuff are so victorious. My first historical hero, a guy named Harry Houdini... Um, Harry Houdini loved to debunk psychic and mystical experiences. He was fascinated by them, so he wanted to experience one. And what he kept finding out was he wasn't experiencing them. He would go pay big money to people who were being paid big money to experience them, and within seconds he could figure out what their con was. He started hosting seances and things just to humiliate people, that as they bought into it, and he was, because he was better at it than all of the other professionals, and he didn't believe in one word of it. He never did. To the day he died, um, I can't remember which direction it went, either he told his wife or his wife told him a special code word, so that if anybody ever calls forward my spirit, you'll know in a second because you'll have the code word. No one ever told him the code word. It never happened. My favorite doctor, Mr., maybe doctor, James Randi, the the great uh, Randi, he's a magician, For years, he got into this world, and for decades, he carried around a million-dollar check for anyone who could pass just three levels, um, or maybe four levels, of psychic scientific testing. He was safe. He safely carried it for decades. No one ever made it even pass test two. When the psychics, when one of the big psychic communities got together and said, hey, we're going to have this big activity, this big psychic game, we're going to finally prove once and for all that there is psychic phenomena. We're going to find the best psychic in the world and test them and prove it. We're going to finally do this. In the end, they were able to narrow it down to just two, and they couldn't choose between those two. And finally, they named both of them the top psychics of the world. And they were both the two students of James Randi that he had secretly hidden in the contest. Most psychic type pagan practitioner phenomenon is completely fraudulent. If you as a kid you got involved you bought a Ouija board when you were a kid, or if you bought a Ouija board nowadays, you didn't buy it on Amazon when you were a kid, but if you bought it on Amazon, probably the main worst evil that happened was that Hasbro cheated you out of twenty-six bucks for about two dollars of plastic and cardboard. That's probably the main thing that happened. However, real occult and pagan practitioners are seeking supernatural power or knowledge through spiritual means other than God. And though I believe it is almost always a joke, this passage teaches us, as do many others in the Bible, that sometimes things happen. We may not understand exactly what happens here, but something does In a second, I'll tell you what I think is that happens here. But what I want you to see is that though the occult and pagan stuff may mostly be smoke and mirrors and bankruptcy, sometimes it isn't. Black widow spiders rarely bite. But when they do, they inject a more lethal toxin than any other animal in this part of the world. So your odds of not being bitten by them are really, really good. Anybody play with black widow spiders? I wouldn't recommend it. It's foolish at two levels. One, it's not a, they're not very fun to play with. Probably a waste of your time. Two, there's a tiny chance that they're going to bite you. And when they do, it's lethal. Does God seem to see pagan efforts at power as merely a waste of time and reason? He does mock it. In Isaiah, he mocks the making of idols. You get a piece of wood, with half of it you cook your stew and the other half you carve into an idol. What are you thinking? That's as laughable and mockable as any human behavior that's ever existed. What a ridiculous thing for someone to do. However, as I said, Deuteronomy 18, all forms of pagan practitioner are directly condemned for the Hebrew people. The prophets regularly condemn the, ba- the pagan practices. Luke in Acts chapter 19 shows people rejecting their sorcery as a result of coming to Christ. Paul in Galatians condemns the pagan practitioner as a work of the flesh. John lists it alongside murder as sins against God in Revelation chapter 21. How and why and when does it actually work? God does not reveal that. But I don't think it would get this type of attention if it were merely con artistry. Sometimes it is more, and when it is more, it is spiritually Lethal. It is not, we should not give it too much credence, but we must never give it none. Now, sure, it's important to remember as Christians, we don't need to be scared. First John uh, chapter 4, I'm just going to read verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We don't fear the pagan. And our occult practitioner. We don't fear that stuff. The power that God has given us is greater than the power that is in the world. The power that exists in us, not that's been given us. Let me rephrase that. The power that exists in us through the Holy Spirit is greater than any other power any pagan source could ever bring to bear times infinity. So we don't fear the pagan. We don't fear the occult stuff. This close to Halloween, I've got a comment on it, right? Many of you know my perspective. I've written openly about it. I'm not afraid of October 31st. Truly out in the open, paganism is rarely dangerous, and the occult pretty much never is, because the real versions of both of those things thrive in the darkness, not out in the open. When, we throw a big, when they throw a big pagan festival on the square, I'm least scared of it. That's what I'm least concerned about it, right? Um, Paul sent me something that apparently there's a group of psychics that I don't remember what the name of it was, There's some kind of psychic network within Tyler, so probably Rose City, that's what everybody names, everything, but it's like a <laughs> Rose City Psychics Club. I don't know if that's not the name of it, I don't remember what it was, but Paul sent this to me last night, that they have a regular like weekly or monthly or something meeting where they get together, and really reading the article, I was like, so apparently they get together and sell crystals to each other. <laughs> that seems to be what they, what they do with this mostly. It's a time for them to get together and have some community. Um, we do that too. So this, is a, this, this, this thing, sometimes in our fear, we forget some of this. We forget that every day is a day that the Lord has made, and we can rejoice in it. Satan did not create October 31st. It isn't his day. He didn't create this day. He didn't create pumpkins. He didn't create cats. He didn't create bats. None of those things are Satan's. He doesn't get to own any of them. He gets to own absolutely nothing. Sin is the twisting or perversion of some good thing that God has done. Anytime we embrace the perversion, that's when we're out of line. We don't want to ever embrace the perversions of God's good things, regardless of what day of the year that it is. Um, So you may choose to trick-or-treat or host a party on October 31st, or you may be convicted not to, regardless whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We can embrace the real thing, and we're always invited and are free to do so. What we don't embrace is the perversion. This was not a new conversation. This conversation has been going on since the book, at least since the book of Romans, Romans 14, starting in verse 3, "'Let not the one who eats candy corn despise the one who abstains. (laughs) And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another?' Here's, here's where we find out that we're all God's servants. None of us are the under, none of us are the, what is it, the assistant to the manager. We're not over each other, right? Who are you to pass judgment? He will, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems October 31st as better than another. Another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced, convicted, I think is a good word here, in his own mind. So we don't host a Halloween event. By the way, Halloween is the Christian name for October 31st, not the pagan name. I love that people are scared of that name when it's the Christian name for it, um, by the way. But not because we are opposed to it, but because there are other churches already doing it, and they're doing it super well. And so we don't need to spend the budget money again. We don't need to compete with other churches. We don't believe in that. If another church is doing something super well, we don't go, well, if they're doing it, we better do it. No, we have the opposite attitude. If they're doing it well, we don't need to do it. Go there. Send your friends to them. I don't know if we got it or not, Flint. Uh, That's not the right one. Um, (laughs) that That was fun. I mean, that's a good Bible study, though. Go to that one. Flint Baptist Church does a phenomenal event for families on October 31st this year. Um, They're doing it on the day this year. Uh, It's called like Light Up the Night or something like that. I'm a huge fan of it. Um, and they, it's a great church I recommend that one other churches do as well Green Acres is doing an in your neighborhood type of thing I think it's a great idea we may have to steal that someday because it's such a good idea in the neighborhoods um, uh, I would love for you to consider that in, or just use it as a chance to get to know the people in your neighborhood it's good October 31st strangely enough is, a good, is one of the days you can go greet your neighbors and not seem strange um, I, don't, I don't know why that is there we go there it is that's close so that's, a, that's, the de- that's their details page so look it up if that you want to be a part of that, I'm a big fan. So there you go. If, if You get to know your neighbors on October 31st and invite them later to a meal or to a Bible study, that kind of stuff. It's God's day. He made it. Rejoice in it. Verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God, Elohim here, of all the confusing words she picks. It's the most confusing. Um, he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and of course, he's wrapped in a robe, and immediately an old man in a robe. That, that should tell you nothing, right? Um, that that that's there. You go. But it's maybe the robe has a rip in it, and she and he knows. Saul knew it was Samuel. He bowed to the ground and paid homage. Samuel said to Saul, "Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up?" Saul answered, "I'm in great distress. The Philistines are warring against me. God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophet or dreams." Doesn't mention the Urim thing. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what to do. Samuel is apparently at peace, and he seems irritated that Saul has disturbed him. And this, I think, lets us know what's actually going on here. I think this is theologically and biblically essentially the same thing that happens a thousand years later um, that God brings Samuel's spirit up to speak to his, to his child Saul. Even though he's rejected Saul in generosity, he brings Samuel, he allows Samuel to be brought up to speak to Saul. And in a thousand years, he's going to send Moses and Elijah the week before Jesus' crucifixion to speak to them, to speak to him about the crucifixion. And I think probably if there is a mirror event in the Bible, it's that one. This is God in generosity bringing Saul, Samuel. Just like in generosity, he brought Jesus, Elijah, and Moses to have that conversation. Two men, at least one of whom, for sure, had died. And I think something similar is going on here. We can unpack someday, maybe when we're going through Luke or Romans, we'll unpack um, the nature of what happens to the human being when we die. We've done that in some Q&A times. We're not going to unpack that here. I think that's what's going on here. Verse 16, Samuel says, "'Why do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy?' I'm going to skim through this because it's, this is Samuel saying, you're wasting my time. You're wasting your time. You already know the answer to these questions. God is turning you over to the Philistines. That's it. The only update is found in verse um, 19. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. How's this for chilling? And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Saul has wasted Samuel's time. No new message, God is still your enemy. The only update is this, tomorrow is the day. Tomorrow you and your sons will be dead. Verse 20, not surprisingly, Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. Well, it's a little late. Saul should have fallen on his face out of the fear of disobedience to God a long time ago. And now it feels like Saul's not afraid of of being wrong before the Lord, he's just afraid of being dead. It's essentially the same message that God had to give through Samuel to Eli, however many, 60 years before. God has already judged you. He has already found you guilty. At this point, it's done. I'm going to skip that section um, from going back. Samuel has finally gotten away from having to deliver messages like this. Samuel finally got to retire by dying. Imagine how frustrated and irritated he is that Saul has brought him back to once again have to deliver to someone he loves the condemnation of the Lord. How heartbreaking. I I think Samuel's due his rest. There's no strength in Saul, for he had eaten nothing all day and night. There you go, continuing to make good decisions. Um, Saul, The woman came to Saul, and when she saw he was terrified, she said, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in your hand and have listened to you. Now, therefore, you obey your servant. There you go. That should go on Saul's tombstone, shouldn't it? He always obeyed his servants. Saul's best shot. He never knows what to do. He never knows the right thing to do, even in the most basic sense. He has to be led by the hand now by a mumbler. She probably wants him out of there. He is despairing of heart, physically weak, and she guides him. This pattern has been so clear over and over. Think of how defeated Saul is here. Here he is laying on the ground in a necromancer's tent, starving in the wrong clothes, in the wrong place, at the wrong time. Everything is off. Everything is out of control in his life. And he has, he has turned himself over to this situation. There is so much more here. Obviously, this you can imagine doctoral theses have been written on this chapter over and over again. But I think for all of the interesting stuff in this passage, there is a sobering thought woven through it. There's a sobering, sobering thought woven through it. You should ask ask the question that Saul's asking himself here. How did I get here? How did my life lead to this? And what an important question for someone to ask. Um, as you know, when I'm preparing sermons, um, I like to—I go through the commentaries. I go through first, read it several times, um, mark up my own questions and my own things and insights I think the Spirit is giving and all of that. And then I go through commentaries. And while I'm going through the commentaries, I also have other pastors who I know and respect in the background on YouTube um, preaching through the same material. This time I was struck. Um, and so I referenced the same three or four. You hear me do that periodically, reference different commentaries or whatever. But um, I was struck that the summary that Alistair Begg gives at the end of this chapter is so good, it I don't think it could be topped. And so instead of me doing it, I watch his heart in this. It made my eyes fill with tears at the thought of Alistair Begg talking to the church where he's been for so many years, a, people, a congregation full of people who he loves. And I want you to listen to the words that he speaks to his people. I don't think, I don't think that could be better spoken. And let it, I want it to be an encouragement for all of us. That this is, you're hearing God's word taught today. God loves you and has chosen to send his son to save us, to cover our sins, to purchase us from our slavery, to ourselves and to death and to sin. He's, he's done that out of the goodness and kindness and righteousness of who he is. But we have plenty of places, as he just referenced, where God says there comes a day, there comes a point at which God doesn't strive always with everybody. And and that's not something I would want for anyone who I love, including you. I wouldn't wouldn't want that. And so my, my prayer would be that when you hear this message, you would not harden your heart to be reminded. That's what struck me in the midst of this passage, is that here you have Saul in this place, and he's waited too late to ask, how did I get here? Now, I don't know if Saul had truly repented in his heart right now. Would God have welcomed him in? God's pretty crazy about that kind of stuff. He does it. When, even when it seems like there is no hope. I don't, I don't want anyone here to think that it's too late for you. That's my invitation. So if you would, stand. If you don't know the Lord, I, I pray that today you would hear, that, hear the rest of us as orphans calling into the orphanage. We've been rescued. We've been purchased. We've been adopted. Join us out here. The weather is awesome. This is a great place to be. This Father who has purchased us is the best. Join us. That's all we're saying. We're not saying we've got anything special ourselves, but that we have found something special. We've been found by a God who loves us and is desperately loving us, and He loves you too, and I don't want you to miss out on that. If that's you, if you've never accepted that, or if you're a Christian who has been living in rebellion against that for years and years and years, loving your own sin or self uh, more than you loved the Lord, then let today be the day of repentance. Unlike Saul... When you ask the question, how did I get here, be like the prodigal son who comes to your right mind and says, how do I get out of here? How do I make this right? How do I get where I'm supposed to be? How do I get home? If that's you, I pray that you hear that today. Um, If you've been um, visiting with us and you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family, you can come do that as well during this time of invitation. Um, but, But my prayer today is, well... Let me read it from Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is cold today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion.